or a Dow Jones Industrial Average for, oh my goodness, what is going on in the financial news? It would sound like this. The Dow lost more than 1,100 points today. What a long, strange day it was on Wall Street. The Dow's worst week now in more than two years. The largest same-day point drop on record, 4.6%. The biggest percentage drop since 2011. Ugly, lots of red, lots of selling. Wildest days that we've seen on Wall Street. Market meltdown. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. So yeah, what the heck happened this week? On Thursday, the Dow even entered correction territory. That means 10% off its recent highs. And we're going to take the very first part of our name, market, or markets in this case, and figure out how the up-down, up-down roller coaster does and doesn't relate to all our lives. To do that, I have three very smart guests. Jill Schlesinger, a CBS business analyst and personal finance expert. Michael Batnick, the director of research at Ritholtz Wealth Management, and Julia Coronado, a former Fed economist and founder of Macro Policy Perspectives. Welcome to all of you. Thank you. Hello. All right. Before we get into big questions, I want to go lightning round. uh, Start with some terminology that our listeners probably heard this week. Julia, throwing this one to you. Why is the stock market not the economy? Well, there's a, a number of reasons. First of all, the stock market is representative of how well the business sector is doing, and that's both um, how well the U.S. business sector is doing, but also the U.S. business sector is very global. So it's a representation of global business activity and U.S. business activity. But even though more than half of U.S. households own stock, about 80% of the stock is owned by 10% of the households. So for most households, it's either not in their uh, portfolio, or it's a smaller part of their overall well-being, and the economy can do fine when the stock market's going down, and it can do fine when the stock market's going up, um, sort of on its own hum. Michael, we're humans. We like to tell stories. Some of those stories this week have been, oh, there was a State of the Union address. There's a new Fed chair. Are any of these things responsible for the roller coaster ride of the past few days? Blame the robots. Blame the robots? I'm just kidding. No, I think that human beings are perfectly capable of throwing the market into into tizzy. And I think that 2017 was the outlier year, not 2018. So we saw a lack of volatility, an unprecedented lack of volatility in 2017, 202 straight days, near 3% of the all-time highs. It was a steady grind higher, and I think we got accustomed to that. And people head out the exits a lot quicker than they head uh, into the stock market. Well, then you sort of set me up for a perfect question to Jill, which is, all right, Jill, what's the VIX? (laughs) It's a silly index that dopey people like me used to care about because I was an options trader for my formative years on Wall Street. Uh, It is essentially a bet on future fluctuations in the S&P 500 index. That's it. And um, it becomes completely overused as this thing called the fear index. And really, it just tells you, are things moving around a whole lot? And do people expect those things to keep moving around a lot? Well, so this is this question of what counts as volatile. And we actually got a a question from one of our listeners on this point. Joe Jamsky asked this question on Facebook. What counts as volatile? It's only been a week of decline. It hasn't been that erratic. How long do you wait before you start freaking out? (laughs) Julia? Well, so um, first of all, you shouldn't necessarily freak out because things are volatile. Volatility in in one way to think about it is it's a measure of risk. 
and um, there is risk in investing, and you should sort of know that and expect that there is going to be some fluctuations around asset valuations. So, um, so, so it isn't necessarily a reason to panic. Um, and I think, as Michael pointed out, it was abnormally low across markets last year, and it's volatility is coming back, and that's sort of a sign of normal, healthy expressions of risk in markets. So it's not necessarily something to um, make you run for the exits. Michael, you wrote about this on your blog this week, which is sort of like, if you don't freak out a little bit, you're, what, not holding enough stock, and yet? Yeah, I mean, I think it's very normal and, and healthy to be afraid when everybody else is. What's not healthy is to react to that fear. So the important thing for the average person listening at home, and unless you're Warren Buffett tuning into this, I'm talking to you, it's uh-huh. r- risk is not volatility. So stocks are going to fluctuate. What's more, what real risk is, is running out of money. So we have to really remind ourselves, why are we investing in the first place? Okay, you're 40 years old, you're making some money, your account is fluctuating, that as it should. Would you rather go to cash or bonds and you see less fluctuation, but then, oh, you have big, big, big problems 30 years from now? Well, okay. So, Jill, put your personal finance hat on. Um, Is the sort of do-nothing mantra the best one? You know, it's so funny. Uh, I did a hit on Evening News this week when we had that Dow plunge of 1,175 points. And right before I went on the air, my mother said, you better not say do nothing because it drives me crazy when you say that. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, in honor of you, Mom, um, what I said was, just as Michael said, if you're a long-term investor, and, and long-term, I, I don't need my money. I don't need to access this money for five years, 10 years. Even if you were thinking about retiring in a month, chances are you are not cashing in your entire retirement account in one month and needing that money. You need some portion of it. So I think that most people get that. You're a long-term investor. You want to stick to your game plan. You don't want to start second-guessing yourself because that's where you are going to start to get into trouble. That said, let's just say you're the type of person who discounted the fact that people like me said, hey, you know, you should keep money that's safe money out of the market. And you kept a bunch of money in the market. And now you know you need some money within the next year. You need, let's say, uh, to close a house. You're going to have to show up to a closing with a check. You have to actually go buy a new car. Maybe um, you have to write a tuition check. That money never should have been at risk in the first place. And my feeling is, is the moment you realize you've made a big mistake, then you need to free up that money, regardless of what's going on in the market. And you're probably going to get singed on this. The day you sell it off and free up that money, the market will turn around and go up. But you still would have done the most prudent thing. Michael, do you buy this idea that we are moving into an era of slightly higher inflation? After all, there's been basically no inflation for the past 10 years. Is there a new normal out there? I don't think that the person listening to this to this uh, broadcast should be worrying about what inflation might or might not mean for their future. What they should be worrying about are the simple things. What is my allocation to stocks and to bonds? Am I a long-term investor? Yes, I am. But I have to put myself in a position to survive the short term. And if that was the takeaway from Monday and Tuesday, well, then good. It was a hopefully not too expensive of a lesson. But if you had 80% of your portfolio in stocks and 20% in bonds and you were really, really frightened about what Wednesday might bring, well, then maybe 80% is a little bit too much. Conversely, if you weren't worried at all about what the market was doing, you probably could take a little bit more risk. Hmm. 
So I want to zoom out a little bit and, and throw a larger question. I think to you, Julia, we, we got a question from a listener. So Marketplace posted on Monday evening, the fundamentals of the economy are still strong. Look, we've got 4.1% unemployment. We did see wages tick up. But one of our listeners replied, and I think this is a really important question, for whom, though, are the fundamentals strong? Because we have seen such a fracturing in the way Americans think about the economy. Julia, for, for whom are the, are the fundamentals strong? Well, that's that's entirely fair. The fundamentals are strong sort of at the aggregate level. And I think that they are improving um, as the labor market gets stronger. We have seen wage gains broaden out. Um, but that's certainly true. Um, as I mentioned earlier with the stock market, those gains are extremely narrowly uh, realized and don't spill over to the vast majority of the population. So um, I think it's very important for policymakers, for example, to keep their eye on uh, that broader picture and not, for example, if you're the Federal Reserve, you shouldn't necessarily raise interest rates a lot faster because the stock market's a lot higher if it's not spilling over into a strong labor market, rising wages, and a broad-based pickup in inflation. And I think that's how they have behaved. But um, that's an ongoing problem that we are having, that other um, developed countries in Europe and Asia are having, is that there has been a polarization in wage growth and, um, and economic well-being. And, and, and that's a structural issue that we are facing. Jill, I'm going to let you take us out here. Um, if you have one piece of advice for people who are listening right now, well, what do you think it would be? Uh, you know, one. Well, you, you're asking the wrong person for one. I'm going to give you kind of my big three. <laughs> okay. Freaking long-winded ding-dong here I am. Uh, okay. So here's the thing. Take a deep breath. You are allowed to fear what's going on because it's been jarring relative to the relative tranquility of the past two years. So it's jarring. Um, But it is a wonderful reminder that this thing called investing is not a game. It's not a sport. It's not a navigation. It is a means to an end. And it is dangerous. And, you know, just like it can be really, really fun to swim in the ocean and body surf Every so often we get cocky and we forget that actually this thing called the ocean is a lot bigger than us and we can get crushed by a wave or by undertow. And so I think that this is a wonderful reminder that markets are dangerous and that investing is a dangerous thing and it should not be taken lightly. And those who have plans tend to do better over time. And so here's maybe not one thing to remember, but a few things. Number one, respect the fact that you're doing something that's dangerous. Number two, Make sure that you've got an overall game plan and using investing as a part of that game plan. And number three, once you have that plan, don't second guess yourself because over time, it is really difficult to figure out where the top and the bottom of a market is. Here, here. Michael Batnick, Jill Schlesinger, Julia Coronado, thank you all very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure. Thank you. And if you have more questions about the stock market, keep them coming. You can email us. We're weekend at marketplace.org. Call us. Our number is 1-800-648-5114. And if you're listening via podcast, leave us a review. It helps other people find us.
International Day of Love is just around the corner. And even if you're a Valentine's Day Grinch, it's a huge season in the world of flowers. So this week's news by the numbers comes courtesy of roses with Marketplace producers Tony Wagner and Eliza Mills. Thanks, Lizzie. Our first number is 99. That's about the percent of roses sold in the U.S. that are imported, according to the California Cut Flower Commission. Rose-growing businesses in the States have been shuttering for years. Most roses sold in the U.S. are actually grown in South America. Colombia and Ecuador alone exported a combined $2 billion in flowers in 2016. 63. According to the National Retail Federation, about 63% of flowers sold for Valentine's Day are red roses. 35% are mixed bouquets and 23% are classified as plants. If you are going with roses, it may cost you. Rose prices tend to spike around Valentine's Day as sellers capitalize on their popularity. Now, if you really want to splurge on red roses, here's a number for you. 12500 That's about how many dollars it'll cost you for a 1,000-stem bouquet of Arena Flowers red roses. The flower company claims their Ecuadorian-grown roses are the tallest in the world, with almost five-foot stems. If you don't have 12.5K lying around, a 24-stem bouquet costs about $700. If 1,000 long-stem roses aren't rich enough for your taste, $154,000 will buy you 100 roses, a bottle of Cristal, an iPad, and a Tesla. I think I just prefer chocolate. Like $154,000 worth of chocolate. all been there. Someone takes your lunch from the work fridge, uses all the printer paper, and doesn't replace it? Talks on the phone so loudly that noise-canceling headphones don't stand a chance. Yes, annoying co-workers and office etiquette. But also, how to cope with all that stuff before you lose your mind. Allison Green from Ask a Manager joins us every month to guide us through life at work. Welcome back. Thanks for having me. All right. So look, even in the best offices where everybody likes each other, you know, there's just this problem where people get under one another's skin. It's sort of a, I don't know, risk of the job. What are some of the main things that you hear about? Uh, One of the biggest that I hear about all the time, probably every day, is noise, noise of all sorts. So taking too many calls on speakerphone or the person who keeps bursting into loud, raucous laughter while you're trying to concentrate or the person who sits a couple of feet away from you and is just humming nonstop all day. It's stuff that sounds small when you complain about it to someone outside of your office, but when you are stuck in close proximity to it all day, it can get really aggravating. The other category I hear a lot about is intrusive coworkers. Hmm. So the, the people who comment on everything that you eat or demand to know whether and when you plan to have kids or why you're not dating right now. And there's also the opposite of that, which is the coworker who overshares way more than you want to know about their own dating life or their diet or their health. I could go on and on, but, but those are the categories that I hear about pretty regularly. Well, okay, so what do you recommend for someone, you know, who is upset? Do you bring this up with a person directly or kind of go to HR and hope they can help you? So in most of these cases, it's stuff that you want to try to address directly with the person. If you go to HR, your manager with with kind of interpersonal issues, they're likely to tell you to go back and talk to the person directly anyway. And you risk looking like you can't manage your own work relationships. So you want to try to address it yourself in most cases. I think it's pretty common for people to be hesitant to do it, though, because they don't want to cause tension in the relationship. People don't like conflict. 
Yeah. And I think, you know, I get so many letters on these topics where I think people are hoping for some kind of magic solution where they can get the person to stop doing the annoying thing without actually having to talk to them. But if you want it to stop, you do have to speak up. You do have to have the potentially awkward conversation. And the thing to remember, I think, is that most people do want to know if they're doing something that's getting on your last nerve. And most people will be reasonable if you approach them about it politely. And also people will generally take their cues from you. So if you're direct and matter of fact and you approach it the way you would any other work-related problem, instead of oozing awkwardness and discomfort when you raise it, it's probably going to go over okay. There is sort of this rule of thumb that people often use for interpersonal issues, which is I feel X or my experience is X rather than you do X, Allison, and it drives me crazy. Is that helpful in this scenario to sort of help people feel less defensive? I think one thing that can work really well is to make it about you rather than about them. So kind of like what you were saying, I mean, you could say, um, you know, I am just bizarrely sensitive to sound. So I don't want to tell you not to chew gum all day, but for some reason, I I just have a really, I have a really weird thing about it. Hmm. Um, do you, you know, I'm so sorry to ask, but do you think you could rein it in? So then you're making it about you. You're not telling them that they're a rude monster you're you're approaching it from a standpoint that maybe will make them a little less defensive about it. So you mentioned noise is one that comes up a lot. We had a listener write to us about noise in his office. I'm not going to use his name, um, but here is his comment. My question is, we're in an open floor plan with 20-foot ceilings and cubicles that are just tall enough that it's kind of hard to see over them. I sit toward the middle of the space. I have good hearing and hear conversations that take place within about 60 feet of me. Some coworkers are just naturally loud, especially on the phone, or have a tendency to use the speakerphone functionality when on conference calls. While I have noise-canceling headphones that I use to listen to music, I can still hear people talking. It's especially bad with the coworker sitting at the desk behind me who mutters or with people who have conversations near my desk, which is across from the door into the copy room. Aside from going to HR with my concerns, which I don't think will be all that effective, how do I tell my coworkers to be more respectful of noise levels? Oof. There you go. So most people don't realize when they're making a noise that's bothering you. And most people are going to be receptive to a polite request to stop. So for the guy who mutters, you could say something like, I'm sure you didn't realize this, but when you talk to yourself while you're working, it can be pretty distracting. Any any chance you could try to be aware of it and rein it in. And with the people who are having conversations in the copy room, that's trickier because it's probably different people each time. But you can pop in there and say, you know, so sorry to ask, but voices really travel here. Can I ask you to keep it down since I'm right across the way and trying to focus? But, you know, when you're in an open floor plan office like that, there is going to be noise. And it can be a really tough environment to work in if you're someone who needs quiet in order to focus. They, that office sounds like they need a rule about not taking calls on, on speakerphone and being aware of noise in the copy room. And maybe that's something that the caller could suggest, because I bet he's not the only one who's annoyed by it. Um, we have another noise question. This one is a little more complicated. So our listener wrote, I'd like some guidance on a coworker who coughs, not just when he has a cold, but every 10 minutes. He doesn't notice he's doing it. And because we share a thin office wall, I hear him every hour of every day. He's senior to me, so I can't just walk into his office and confront him. Would it be too passive-aggressive to leave a bag of cough drops on his desk or a note suggesting he needs to see his doctor? Allison? 
Uh, so this one is tough for everyone. I would not leave the cough drops or the note. You know, when someone has a chronic cough like that, they're generally acutely aware of it. He's probably tried cough drops and chances are pretty good he's seen a doctor. So with this one, your best bet is to try to make it become background noise for yourself or see if you can block it with headphones or even something like white noise. I know that's easier said than done, but it might help to keep in mind that he is probably equally frustrated, if not more so. All right. What if you secretly suspect you're the annoying colleague. And, you know, maybe it's you think, ooh, I shouldn't have told that story about that bad date. Or I babble too much. Or maybe a candle on my desk is kind of stinky. What do you do? (laughs) I think we all probably do have habits that annoy other people. We've all probably been someone else's annoying coworker at some point. I think remember that we're all stuck sharing space with each other, whether we want to be or not, and and just make a point about being thoughtful about how you're impacting that space, what sounds or what smells you're making, or how much of people's time you're taking up, what kind of energy you're bringing into the space. And that that doesn't mean that you have to make yourself as small and unnoticeable as possible, but just be thoughtful. And especially if you're in an open office plan with little privacy, or if you're in very cramped quarters, it can be good to just talk with people occasionally about how things are going. You know, is the space sharing working for everyone? Or are there things that any of you could be doing differently? And the more open you seem to that kind of conversation, the more likely it is that people will feel comfortable approaching you if, in fact, you are driving them crazy in some way. Allison Green, who runs the blog Ask a Manager, thank you so much. Thank you. You can find Allison's past advice on how to quit gracefully, appropriate office attire, and dealing with kids in the workplace. Just go to Marketplace.org and look for Weekends Ask a Manager. What's the opposite of an annoying coworker? Someone who, in the office anyway, means almost as much to you as a significant other. I'm talking work wives, work husbands, and work BFFs. And while, of course, it's fun to have someone to share a laugh with or complain about the boss with, it turns out close relationships are good for business. According to a recent Gallup poll, women who say they have a work BFF are more than twice as likely to be engaged with their jobs, compared to 29% who say they don't have a work bestie. Strong workplace connections can also lead to fewer accidents and more profits. So how does it work? Two work wives based in Los Angeles shared their story. Go ahead, dear. (laughs) My name is Brandi Jordan. I live in Los Angeles and many titles, but I would say that I work with all things baby, mom, family. Am I missing something work wife? I'm Hannah Hallowell and I live in Los Angeles and I am the co-owner of the Baby Play Group with my work wife. Oh, I guess I should have mentioned that. Yeah. See? That business we do together. Peas in a pod. We met at a mommy and me class almost 11 years ago. Yep, 11 years ago. Yeah. We weren't really friends back then, were we? We were friendly. We were friendly. We weren't friends. I think the way that I remember it was... Uh, we met in a baby class, figured out that we both did similar things uh, in terms of work, and Brandy wanted me to come and work with her, at which point, for some reason, I said no. I, I don't know why I did that, but I said no, and then we didn't talk for years, right? 
I want to say a good four years. Four years. So yeah, so let me, like, so basically what happened is I said that I wanted to change the birth world, and she'd stopped speaking to me for four years. <laughs> That's how I'm going to not remember that story. And then I went and did something unrelated and called her up one day. I was kind of tired of what I was doing and wanted to figure out if she was still interested, still doing what she had wanted to do. And I happened to be jumping on a plane to Brazil with a client like literally that day or next day. And I said, yes, let's do it. Talk to you in four days. And the rest is history. And we've been work wives ever since. I think more so than just being colleagues, like we actually, one, me and her share a brain. So that's one thing. Like, you know, I can have an idea and I don't have to have it fully developed. But just talking to her, it's going to come together if we're working together. Like, it's just going to come together because we can kind of complete each other's vision. So that's one thing. But beyond that, like, we just really enjoy each other's company. And I think we also support each other in every realm of our lives. So we have in common that we're both workaholics. We love what we do. So we do that all the time. But beyond that, we both have families. We both have, you know, the same dream that everyone has, which is this work-life balance situation. And in working together, we're able to uh, support each other in finding that. We do have an office, but we often sometimes meet at our home as well, depending on what's happening with our children. For example, driving here, our day was in the car. Like, I think we laughed the entire time coming here now. Just yes. cracking jokes with each other. Yes. So we need to do at least an hour of that before we can actually get any work done. Yes. <laughs> so that's usually our process. It's either laughing, dancing, music videos in the background. Yeah. yeah. Talking about current events, which either will make us really upset about what's happening and discussing that and having to, like, release that before we can work. Or just having fun and laughing and having just doing that before we can actually get down to work business. So that's how it always starts. Um, and then usually we will be, you know, eating, kids running around and getting things done. And, you know, I'll take care of this, you take care of that. We're sharing a Google Doc, working from two different computers. A lot of our days include really, really long work lunches, which has become, in my household at least, uh, a point of contention. My husband will go like, oh, you've got work. You're going to a work lunch again. <laughs> yes, I am. And actually, we do get work done. It we doesn't do. look like it hard from the outside because we're laughing and having a lot of fun. But we work really well together. So, like, if we can get, like, two or three compact hours with each other, we can get more done than we would do by ourselves, I think, anyway. At the end of the day, you know, the thing that Brandy and I share, I think that's so unique, is that we really do want to see the world differently than it is right now, the world that we hand over to our kids. And so we work to create that every day. We want more women in business. We want more women of color in leadership positions. We want more work-life balance. We want more, you know, families in the workplace. And, and we work to create that together every day. Yeah, I think it's, I mean, it's been helpful just because it can be overwhelming to be a working mom and have everything on your shoulders. And I know that I can equally share it with her. There's times where, like, I'm a mess and I'm not doing the things I'm supposed to be doing. And I know that she can carry that and vice versa. And there's not going to be anyone feeling like, oh, they're not handling their weight or whatever. Like, we just can have this ebb and flow that's kind of seamless. And I'm more concerned about maintaining our friendship than I am about our work relationship, which I think makes us difference between having a colleague and a work wife. Thanks, boo. <laughs>
That was Brandy Jordan and Hannah Hallowell sharing their work-wife story. Do you have a close friend at work? How does it help you? Or have you steered clear of having a work BFF? Let us know. Our email is weekend at marketplace.org. And our voicemail is 1-800-648-5114. Every week, we try to help you understand the world a little better and hear what you have to say about our stories, like this one about E-Verify. E-Verify is a system that allows employers to check whether people that they've newly hired are authorized to work in the United States. Essentially, they take the information provided by the employee, their name, date of birth, social security number, and run it through a system that checks it against government databases to see whether that person is authorized to work in the United States. And then the system will kick back either a kind of approved indication or a flag that there's some problem with the information that needs to be you know, further explored and rectified, or perhaps that the person is not authorized to work in the country. That's Julia Gillat from the Migration Policy Institute. You can listen to the whole conversation at Marketplace.org. And here are some of your thoughts. Priscilla Molesky emailed, I am now retired but worked for county government. We were required to use E-Verify for screening public housing applicants. We pretty much dropped it because you could never get through online or could not get the information needed. Also, there was no training. Denise Klein sent us this message. I have some experience as an HR professional with using E-Verify, and something you didn't mention in your story is that employers who participate in the program must sign a Memorandum of Understanding. The MOU states that the employer is agreeing to screen all hires. So when a state like Arizona mandates the program, they're not just forcing it on Arizona new hires when you have a multi-state employer. And Orson Zed adds this. Had to go through E-Verify for every job. Shouldn't need my social security card and birth certificate for a job. You can email the show, weekend at marketplace.org. We always like getting voice memos so we can hear you. Or leave us a message at a song becomes a hit will soon depend on how you listen to it. Billboard, which controls the Hot 100 rankings, announced that plays on paid streaming platforms like Tidal and Apple Music will get more weight on their influential list than plays on free platforms like YouTube or SoundCloud. To figure out what all this means for the future of the music business, Marketplace's Peter Balanon-Rosen started by looking to the past. Casa Amadeo in the Bronx is the oldest Latin music store in New York City. Since 1941, it's been a go-to for music. Today, guitar strings and bongos keep the place afloat. My name is Miguel Angel Amadeo. Everybody knows me by the name of uh, Mike. Mike Amadeo. For the past 49 years, he's run this store. Six days a week, nine hours a day. Up until the mid-90s, he used to get an envelope in the mail every month from Billboard with a list of new music. He had to respond with what was selling. Yeah, what's the hit, what's the record that's uh, selling the most? And I used to write it, seal it, put a stamp on it, and send it to the 
Billboard would process info from across the country and put together their charts. But like any system, it could be gamed. Like what happened with uh, Selena. Que Dios la tenga en la gloria. That's Selena, one of the highest-selling Latin artists of all time. Amadeo points to a framed poster of her sent from her record company. It's signed. He says that was kind of a wink and a nudge. If you read what he says there, it's ridiculous. You know, send me kisses. Gracias por el apoyo. Blessing me because I'm such a nice guy. I never (laughs) did anything for her. It was common. Company sends gift. Clerk marks down an album as selling higher than it actually did. And boom, they've got a hit on their hands. Amadeo says he never caved. He's a composer and musician, and he puts on a song he wrote. Before long, while record store owners like Amadeo look to the past, the music industry barreled towards its future. Technology changed how we listen to music, and that meant the charts changed too. By 2013, Billboard had a new formula to determine what's popular. It looked at sales, radio play, and streaming on places like Spotify, YouTube, Tidal, and SoundCloud. It was a little crazy. I think for a lot of people, they were still dubious about what streaming was going to mean. Gary Suarez is a music critic and journalist, but streaming was here to stay. And all of a sudden, a real-time reflection of people's tastes, especially youth. 85% of 13 to 15-year-olds stream music regularly. Hip-hop is now the most consumed genre in the country, period. It is also the predominant genre grouping on streaming platforms. Let's look at last year alone. These songs topped the Billboard Hot 100 in 2017. Those were number one hits by Migos, Kendrick Lamar, Luis Fonsi, and Ray Sremmerd. And it's with these songs that YouTube really comes into play. Almost half, about 46% of all time spent streaming music, happens on YouTube. And record labels use this reality to their advantage. One of the best examples, I would say, is uh, Post Malone's Rockstar. What they did was they created a YouTube video. It was only the song's chorus. But the length of the video was precisely the length of the actual song. That video, posted by Malone's record label, had a link to stream the full track. But since the chorus loop was close enough in likeness to the actual song, plays in both places counted. Basically, two streams for the price of one. This is our, our way of fudging the numbers. It's become the new, uh, the new promotion strategy to instruct your fans where to listen to music. Record labels and artists adapt. For instance, rapper Cardi B's fans urged people to stream her song Bodak Yellow on repeat to get her into Billboard's number one spot, and it worked. She took to Instagram to celebrate. Bodak Yellow is the first solo female rap single to reach number one, the hot 100. But now Billboard is changing its rules, and record labels are already adjusting. More on that part in a sec. Billboard wouldn't talk to us about the changes, but they sent a press release. It says paid platforms, so from Apple Music users or Spotify subscribers, will get more weight than plays from people using free services like YouTube. 
They say not all ways to consume music are created equal from a revenue perspective, and charts should reflect that. If I'm not really paying anything for it, you know, am I listening to you know, things that I really maybe don't care about as much or or lower down in the value chain. That's Jim Ledestri, CEO of Border City Media, which makes buzz angle music, a different method to track music consumption. They, too, give more weight to streamers who pay. But here's the thing. Apple Music has 30 million paid users. Spotify has 70 million subscribers. But 1.3 billion users stream music on YouTube each month. Again, music critic Gary Suarez. You may have had two to three million plays of your song, but now it counts less on the Hot 100. The whole point of the Hot Charts was to reflect what people were listening to, not necessarily what was making the record labels money. It's impossible to deny the cultural sway free streams have had. Streaming has boosted more Spanish language and rap songs onto the charts than ever. But now with Billboard's changes... Whitewashing is a definite concern with this. You know, if we look back a year from now at those charts and see, you know, there are fewer hip-hop songs that made it on there and the number one spot was largely held by traditional, conventional pop singers, then that's going to raise some questions about whether or not this was such a good idea. Still, artists and record labels are already reacting. Last week, the Instagram account for the rap group Migos directed people to stream their new album, on Apple Music, a paid platform. For Marketplace, I'm Peter Balanon-Rosen. It's not just music. The whole entertainment industry is changing, including video games. The old order is dead. Long live the new order. <laughs> <laughs> That was Star Wars, The Old Republic. It cost almost $200 million to make, one of the most expensive games of all time. And as the price of making games goes up, companies have tightened their belts on a big cost, people. Writer Michael Thompson explored how the gaming industry is outsourcing labor for the online publication The Outline. Welcome. Nice to be here. Thank you for having me. Can you sort of explain how this outsourcing ecosystem of game development came to be? Yeah, the sort of roots of it began with art outsourcing, basically like creating the set dressing, the props, you know, like Grand Theft Auto, right? This big, sprawling, open world. Rockstar makes those games. They have hundreds of people working there, but even with that many people, they don't have enough staff to make the desk in the side corner of the office Hmm. for that one building that most people aren't even going to go to. And so that is the easiest sort of thing to outsource also because with art, you can send people reference photos. You can send people very concrete sort of comparative things. And then, you know, over the last 10, 15 years, this massive industry has kind of exploded. You went to visit a studio in Shanghai. What yeah. did you see? Uh, an office. <laughs> it's just, it's not a lot is known about outsourcing. People sometimes have these visions of these like super exploitive kind of like sweatshop yeah. kind of conditions. And it's, you know, it's it's an upper middle class profession in China, even though because of exchange rates, the, the wages there are like much lower. It looks like the typical wage in Shanghai, new hires are making about 11 grand a year. Yeah. In the U.S., that would be about 51 grand. Um, this brings up the age old question about outsourcing. Mm. Is that a smart investment from the company's standpoint, or 
is that depressing the wage in America or exploiting the people who are working in China? And and how do you yeah. kind of puzzle through all of those contradictions? Um, I mean, I think the easiest way to, is to just avoid the question of whether or not outsourcing is good or bad, right? Mm. I mean, that's just – that's unanswerable. Outsourcing is just a job and jobs can be good or bad depending on the context. But what I found as I was researching what was sort of happening in the overall market is that the video game market has sort of stagnated over the same time that outsourcing has become more prominent. Do you think there's a link there? Is there some causality between those things? Yeah, I think it's become harder to, you know, grow the video game market. So it's easier to think instead about controlling costs while still trying to compete at this spectacle level, like wowing, dazzling kind of like product. But the finances underneath that aren't growing along with the sort of like technology. Well, so this raises this question of what the future of the industry might look like because you do see these big complicated games get rolled out and headlines about how X is the most expensive game ever. But what happens in five years? What happens in 10 years? I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the the video game industry as a whole is growing, not the console industry, right? So like... All the growth is coming from, like, PC games, mobile games, tablet games, games with a much lower sort of technology load than, like, Grand Theft Auto, Call of Duty, these big, explosive, sort of effects-heavy kind of things. And so from an investor point of view, you think, okay, to make this big PlayStation console game that everyone loves, that gets really good reviews, I have to tie up my money for seven years, get a fairly low return on that investment – or you could go make 100 free-to-play games, and if one or two takes off, then you suddenly get returns that are that are much higher. So, I mean, Pokemon Go, I think, was a, a big kind of like canary in a coal mine a little bit of sort of like where the excitement is. You know, there's a sense that the console game is kind of becoming like the dad rock hmm. of video game culture. It's sort of – it's aging out a generation. And it's becoming less and less relevant. I want you to tell me the story of one person uh, who you wrote about – who was working on a game in Russia mm -hmm. um, and then later found himself in China and assumed he might be working on something different, then what happened? He was working on the same game. It was a, an EA shooter called Medal of Honor Airborne. They had hired a bunch of different outsourcers and he was working on uniforms in Russia and he got this new job in Shanghai. They didn't tell him what he was going to be working on. He gets there, and it's the same game. He's just making gun models instead of the uniforms. You know, it's hard to know where one project ends and another begins, who owns which project. You know, it's just like one blob of office labor. Michael Thompson, who wrote this story for The Outline, thank you very much. Thank you. As we mentioned earlier, Valentine's Day is coming up next week, so if your partner cares, better get on that. We explained the market for roses earlier, but if you're like me and more of a chocolate person, this story is for you. Consider it an early Valentine and the next in our series, How to Be a Blank, How to Be a Chocolate Maker. My name is Todd Nasonis. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Dandelion Chocolate. Hi, my name is Greg D'Alessander. I'm the chocolate sorcerer at Dandelion Chocolate. So originally, Dandelion Chocolate started in a garage in Mountain View, California. We started away in a garage just making some chocolate for fun. Uh, we started bringing it to little farmer's markets, and the response was amazing. We started selling out, and so we said we should do something with this. And so we built a little factory on Valencia Street in San Francisco, 
Before we knew it, uh, now we have a couple factories. I met Todd maybe about a year after they had started Dandelion. I started diving into the the sourcing side of things. So working with people all across the world, building relationships to get us some of the best beans in the world. So we can make great chocolate. If you don't have good beans, it's really hard to make good chocolate, as you might imagine. So we all started working together in about 2012. So there are a couple steps involved in making chocolate. So the first one, as Greg mentioned, is you have to get some great beans. On the farm, those beans are fermented and dried and then transported to the maker. And then once we get the beans, the first thing we do is we go through them by hand and sort and look for anything that's weird or germinated or in any way out of spec. Then we roast up the beans in a modified coffee roaster. Then we use some machinery to take off the shells, at which point we get cocoa nibs, which are just basically the meat of the bean. And then we grind them for three to five days. And we, in grinding it, we reduce the particle size and sort of mellow out the flavor. And then we wrap them in foil and paper. And that's how we go from bean to bar. When you get right down to it, one of the, one of the great parts about making chocolate is it can be a really simple and straightforward process that anyone could do at home You need a little bit of specialized equipment, but most of the things you can do, you know, you can roast cocoa beans in your oven. Uh, Similar to making bread, it's a very straightforward process that you can get more and more expert at and make better and better chocolate as you get better at the process. A lot of people have questions about, like, the economics of cocoa and, you know, the ethics of cocoa sourcing. In commodities, there's essentially a fixed price around the world with this assumption that the product is fungible. In other words, every cocoa bean is the same as any other cocoa bean. And therefore, you can pay someone in Costa Rica, where it's frankly very expensive to live, the same amount of money as someone in Tanzania, where it's it's much cheaper to live. And because it's a commodity, everyone essentially gets the same or a very similar price. I think this ends up, not surprisingly, causing a lot of financial issues for the producers, which starts to snowball into challenges where people end up doing unethical or illegal things to try to make ends meet. Rather than sort of stick to that, we direct source. This means I have a relationship with all of the people that we get cocoa beans from. I've visited all of the people we get cocoa beans from so that I know them. I know what their facilities are like. I know how they work and how they operate. This, I think, is an alternative to fair trade, which is where there's a third party guaranteeing things about the product. Direct trade is to say, we know these, the, everyone working with directly and go and visit. So we don't have to have a third party telling us things are appropriate and, and working. We know it because we've seen it with our own eyes. I think people always come to us and say, why is your chocolate so expensive? They say, hey, I could go to the gas station, buy a bar of chocolate for $3, and so why is this $10? But when we take them through our factory and we show them what is involved in making chocolate, people say, wow, this is actually a steal. So when we make chocolate, we are actually making chocolate with only two ingredients, just cocoa beans and sugar. We don't add cocoa butter, vanilla, lecithin. We certainly don't add any preservatives or flavorings. And so most people don't realize that your normal sort of industrial chocolate bar only needs something like 10 to 15% of cocoa bean to be considered a chocolate bar. So we sort of draw a distinction between what we do and what the new sort of American makers do versus like large-scale industrial chocolate. In many ways, we see it similar to craft beer. Initially, when, when people started making craft beer, there was this 
price tag shock. Now, I think people just accept that there's a real difference between, you know, a large scale brewery and a craft brewery. And it's worth paying that extra money to get both the experience, but also in many ways in paying that extra money, you're investing in your community, you're investing in small scale business. I think a lot of people really like, you know, sort of voting with their dollars, if you will, they're supporting innovation and they're supporting small business. When we started, there were probably only maybe 10 or so small companies making chocolate from the bean in America. And I think at last count, it was over 200. And so we're seeing an explosion of new small makers kind of following the path of microbrew or coffee. And so it's probably the most exciting time for chocolate in the last 150 years. But nobody knows, is chocolate going to be the next wine? Is chocolate going to be the next microbrew? Or is chocolate going to be the next coffee? Or is chocolate going to be something else entirely? Everybody knows that in another 10 years, the world of chocolate may look nothing like it does today. And that's what makes it so exciting. That was Todd Misonis and Greg D'Alessander of Dandelion Chocolate. And this piece was produced by Eliza Mills. And that is it for this Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our senior producer. And Daniel Powell is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and thanks for listening. This is APM.